Well, um, welcome to the, let's see, what is it, May? Yeah, it's May now, May 2020 uh, live Q&A vlog. Um, welcome to the eight people who are here already. Thanks for joining in. And um, I don't actually have anything planned, so if you have questions, then uh, um, please let me know. Yeah, yeah, welcome, everybody. Uh, I'm, I'm really glad you were able to uh, join in. Um, I'm, I'm not really sure, you know, going forward, doing this every single month, I, I'm kind of curious to see how many people decide to join in. Uh, the last couple times I've done it has been like once a year, and so obviously that makes it a little bit more rare. But um, uh, either way, I'm trying a different time slot the, um, this uh, month, I guess. It was three hours earlier last time, and I figure I'll be scattering the uh, the timing around each month to try and catch different people. Um, so sometimes it's lunch in one time zone, and sometimes it's dinner in another one. Uh, yeah, uh, someone said, thanks for the Preda Porter video, greetings from Poland. I'm glad you liked that one. Um, actually, that that's really nice to hear because uh, that video uh, was a challenge. Uh, I put a lot of work into that one, and uh, I actually messed up a pretty key but very small rule in that video, and uh, I, I was pretty devastated by it, honestly. I lost a lot of uh, uh, sleep over that, but I ended up fixing it in such a way that made everyone happy. So it's really good to hear that you liked it. Uh, all right, so Alex asked... How does your schedule look like right now? Uh, well, it's actually looking pretty good. Um, I know I mentioned in the update vlog just about a week ago that it seemed like this month was really up in the air, but things are uh, starting to lock into place. Um, it looks like I will be doing the uh, a playthrough for the latest Tiny Epic game, which is going to be coming out on Kickstarter in a couple weeks. Um, that one's in the mail on the way to me, and I'm going to be working on that next week. Um, I also have... Let's see, what was the other one? Uh, there was another one. Oh my gosh, my brain. Uh, anyway, I, I'm busy. I guess that, that the, the short answer of it is I'm busy. Um, I just finished uh, yes, last night uh, filming the uh, uh, In the Hall of the Mountain King video. In fact, ugh, I still have it all over here on the table. <laughs> so uh, that game actually turned out really well, and I've been editing it all morning long. And uh, I think it turned out really well, so I hope people enjoy that one. Uh, all right. Uh, Shorty said, describe your perfect sandwich. Okay. Well, I eat a lot of sandwiches. So as far as like the best sandwich in the world, I'm not sure exactly what that is, but I can tell you the perfect sandwich for me is the one that's easy to acquire, relatively cheap to make. And it's probably the one that I make for lunch pretty much every single day, which is just two pieces of bread, mustard, uh, mayonnaise, or actually I use veginaise just because I like the way that tastes better. And then we have uh, turkey and various cheese like cheddar or pepper jack, and I uh, usually put a pickle on it. So that's maybe not the best sandwich in the world, but it's um, one out of the three meals I eat pretty much every single day of my life. So for me, it seems to fit in pretty well. Uh, welcome to the 20 people who are here now. That's really great to see. Uh, Russ says, do you keep account of the number of games that you have played? Do you log those onto BGG? Yes, yes, I do. Um, I have been logging games on BGG, uh, Board Game Geek, uh, since January of 2010. So that's a full decade of playing board games, which is kind of cool. I remember when I first started doing it, I was like, this is an experiment. I'll see how it goes. And then I just kept doing it. And then um, a couple of years ago, I downloaded the BG Stats app onto my phone, and I started logging with that. And this lets you log the, uh, the actual people you play with and the scores and where you played and all that. And I decided... I think it was about three years ago that I was going to try and put all that information in. It seemed like it would be kind of a hassle putting in all of the scores, but 
I've been doing it for like three years now, and it's a total habit. So I have comprehensive stats about every game I played for the last three years, and I have tracked every single game I played for the last ten. Uh, the only asterisk to that is. I don't track the games that I play for playthroughs. Um, I did a little bit at first, but I honestly just kept forgetting to, and I just decided, you know, I'm just not going to worry about tracking that. Uh, all right, Ross asked another question. Uh, when is in the halls of uh, oh oh oh? When is in the halls of the Mountain King going live? Um, I think probably next Thursday is uh, my best guess. Uh, the reason for that is because. I was going to be uh, publishing a playthrough early next week that then got pushed back a week. So my next week got a little bit empty. So I will be putting out a edited version of this uh, Q&A vlog probably on Monday. And I like to spread things out a little bit. So I'll put in the whole of the Mountain King out on Wednesday or Thursday of next week just to have a nice trickling out because the week after that, there's going to be a couple of sponsored videos going out. Uh, all right. Next up, what is your favorite Polyomino Tetrisy game? That is so easy to answer. Uh, it's A Feast for Odin with the Norwegian's expansion. Um, I got excited about that because I love that game. In fact, it's arguably my number one game at this moment, uh, specifically A Feast for Odin with the Norwegian's expansion. Um, a Feast for Odin was a top 10 game before that, but now it's a contender for uh, number one, and there's a ton of Polyomino pieces and whatnot in that game. Um, I could go on for a very long time about why I think that game is amazing. Um, I actually talked about it for quite a long time in an impressions vlog where I discussed um, playing A Feast for Odin with the Norwegian's expansion. So definitely check that one out if you haven't seen it. Um, I think it's it's an amazing game. I absolutely love it. I actually really like polyamoto games in general. Uh, there's um, If that's in a game, I'm going to become much more interested in playing it for some reason. I'm not really sure why. So uh, that definitely helps the whole situation. Uh, Shorty asks, uh, do you play any online board game, uh, platforms recently got into board game arena and you love it? Uh, yeah, I pretty much only play on tabletop simulator these days, uh, at the start of, well, actually before the whole shelter in place thing happened, I didn't play online at all. I just played games with people, but now that I can't really meet up with people I'm playing a lot of board games online, uh, I played a decent bit on tabletopia. And then I also played a lot on TTS at the start. And over time, I just found that the interface on tabletopia kind of frustrated me and the interface and the way tabletop simulator worked just clicked a lot more. So, uh, at this point I'm pretty much playing everything on tabletop simulator. Uh, I keep telling myself I should try out like board game arena and uh, the other options like that. But we keep just playing games on tabletop simulator, it seems, uh, at least in my uh, friend group. Uh, Alan asked, uh, you mentioned you enjoyed the game, The Magnificent. Any plans for a playthrough video? Uh, yeah, speaking of games that have polyominoes in them, The Magnificent does. And I loved my first play of that game when I played it at BGGCon last year. Now, I actually reached out to the publisher of that game and they were all on board to send me a copy, not to actually make a sponsored playthrough, but they just wanted me to have a copy. And I think they were probably hoping that it would win a Patreon uh, poll. But um, what ended up happening is that it got kind of stuck in customs. Uh, it, they shipped it out in November, and by late December, they were emailing me saying that they had that the customs were asking them for paperwork to prove that it was supposed to go into America. And long story short, it never made it and it got returned back to them. And they then decided to delay to send me a copy until the U S release happened. And then the whole, you know, COVID thing happened. So at this point, I've still only played the magnificent once I still don't have a copy. And when I get a copy, I will absolutely be playing it again. And honestly, it would not surprise me if that one, uh, won a poll for the, uh, Patreon sponsored playthrough. But either way, I would love to do a sponsored playthrough of it. But at this point, the publisher didn't go in for that. Uh, all right. Next up, uh, Michael asked, what's your main criterion for culling a game from your collection? Well, um, honestly, the main criterion is 
how sad will I be to not play this game again in the future? Uh, you know, if a game is in my collection, then hypothetically it's one that I want to play again. And there are lots of games that I get rid of that I would not mind playing again in the future. But when I'm weighing, am I gonna get rid of game A or game B? It's usually me thinking, which one will I be more upset to not have an opportunity to play again in the future. And um, it's the one that loses that uh, decision that gets uh, cult. So um, in general, there's just so many games to play and I am definitely a cult of the new person and I have been since I got into this hobby in like 2008. So, you know, moving on to new stuff is uh, easier for me also because in general, I do receive a lot more games than others do. Obviously, many of them are free these days because I've been doing John Gets Games for, well, six years now, something like that. I don't know, math is hard at this point, but uh, yeah, that's the main, uh, reason. All right. Uh, what upcoming Kickstarter are you most excited about? Asks Alex. Um, this comes up a couple, uh, every now and then, uh, the short answer for that is I don't have an answer for that. I, I don't pay attention to Kickstarter anymore outside of the games that I'm doing sponsored playthroughs for. Uh, so, you know, as far as what game that I know about that's coming in the future that I'm most excited about. Uh, I'm honestly not sure. Uh, a big reason for that is because I'm not sure how much I can say about some of the games that are coming out in the future. Um, there does seem to be some uh, interesting stuff coming around the bend. I do try to only make sponsored playthroughs for games that I think will be interesting to at least some portion of my overall audience. So yeah, unfortunately, I don't have a good answer for you on that one. Uh, all right. Robert asked, you said once you rarely play a game more than three or four times. What is a non-party family game that came out recently that broke that rule? Um, well, I guess I could look at my stats for this. <laughs> uh, if I was to break this down by year and maybe go to 2019, um, well, I can tell you the, the number one game, at least as far as the number of times I played it in 2019 was Visitor in Blackwood Grove. I played that one eight times and that definitely <laughs> matches up with your question. That actually worked out really well. Um, that is a game from, uh, uh, Resonim Games and it is a asymmetric game where it's kind of like E.T. the game where somebody's an alien, somebody's the boy trying to help the alien and everybody else are evil government, uh, people trying to figure out what the secret to the alien's force field is. Um, it's definitely a lighter party style game and I played it eight times. Um, part of that's because it takes about 10 to 15 minutes to play. Uh, looking at some of the other ones that I played, I honestly only played three games last year uh, in addition, uh, more than four times. Uh, it was that one. I played Railroad Inc. six times and I played Llama five times, um, again, because that's a really quick game. So I guess as far as recent games, that'll, that that should answer your question there. Uh, now, uh, over to Ross. Once again, thank you for the uh, Super Chat donation. Uh, he asked, what's your most played game of the year so far? Is that necessary? necessarily a game you like? Well, let's go back to the stats. <laughs> so for... 2020. Uh, oh, well, this is easy. Uh, I have played, actually, I haven't logged the last uh, three games. I've played nine games of The King's Dilemma at this point. Um, that is a campaign style game that supposedly takes about 15 or so games to play. So we are hypothetically over halfway done. And I have decided not to talk about it in my impressions vlogs until I finish the campaign. And currently we're playing two to three sessions a week in a every week uh, campaign that I'm doing with four of my friends. We're playing at the full five player count on Tabletop Simulator. Uh, so that's the one I've played the most uh, by far. I've played uh, Manmus Alk Gonen Conan um, four times, which I also really like. I guess I, guess I didn't say. Um, I like The King's Dilemma. I, I've played it nine times. If I hated it, I would probably have bowed out of the campaign. I have some much more complicated and complex 
opinions about it that I don't really want to go into right now. Um, I've been very frustrated at parts in the game and not the kind of fun frustrated, but um, I'll go into a lot of detail into that one. Um, probably, I don't know, maybe like four or so weeks if we keep playing uh, uh, once a week for like two to three sessions. All right, Jesse asked, uh, by the way, um, welcome to uh, the 35 people. I know a bunch of new people here from the last time I said that, so thank you for joining in. Uh, Jesse asked, what are your favorite dice-driven euros? What dice mechanisms do you think work best, and what are some common design pitfalls? Well, that's that's a that's some questions right there. <laughs> uh, to start off, the favorite dice-driven euros. Um, I really like uh, Oracle of Delphi. That's a dice-driven um, uh, kind of a racing game, but it definitely ha definitely has Euro vibes. Uh, it came out from uh, Steffenfeld like five or so years ago. Um, dice. Uh, whenever I think about this stuff, my brain just goes completely blank. And I actually really like dice in my Euro games. Um, but uh, I guess the Magnificent is a game with dice that I've really quite enjoyed. Again, I only played it once, but I haven't uh, had a chance to come back to that one. Um, I'm sure there are more. I just can't come up with any at this point. At this point. Uh, what dice mechanisms do you think work best and what are some common design pitfalls? Um, well, as far as the best dice mechanisms, especially for a Euro game, um, it's gotta be dice drafting, I think. Um, the when you do dice drafting, you know, you roll a certain number of dice and then people pick those dice and they can then choose from those to do a variety of things. Um, that's great because it kind of flattens the, uh, randomness curve. I mean, it depends on what you do with the dice, I guess, but it gives you a lot of decisions. You don't just roll dice and see if you got what you wanted. The dice are rolled and then you choose. And I really like output randomness in general. I'm okay with some input randomness, uh, but, um, Actually, am I getting those confused? Uh, my brain is hurting at this point. I like it when uh, you make a decision after you roll the dice instead of making a decision before rolling dice. Um, I think that is uh, probably a common design pitfall, honestly, uh, having a game lean too much on uh, situations where you make decisions like I'm gonna spend these resources to roll four dice and then roll the dice and see if I'm successful. Uh, I personally don't like that all that much in games, although it's it's a pretty common thing. Um, uh, also, going back to the dice drafting, one pitfall of dice drafting is that downtime can be a factor. I really, really like it as a mechanism. I just like pool drafting in general. Uh, but uh, if you have too many dice to pick from, and also if you maybe do something like a snake draft in a four-player game, I'm looking at you, uh, Grand Austria Hotel, uh, that can have a lot of downtime. So uh, dice drafting is not always the best thing, but I, I still really do enjoy it. Um, all right. Uh, Ross said, uh, now I have to do a top 10 polyomino games list. Um, I guess I probably could do one of those. There are a lot of polyomino games out there. Uh, and uh, yeah, if you want to suggest that for a contributing producer level uh, uh, vlog option for a bonus video, I would uh, definitely uh, entertain doing that. Um, I hope that there would be 10. Uh, there's a lot of polyomino games out there, right? Yeah, I think I could get up to 10. Uh, all right. Uh, Shorty asked, do you have a favorite board game designer? Huh. That's... That's tough. Um, I feel like in the past I used to, but as I've played more and more games, it's been harder to pin down. Um, for a long time, Through the Ages was my favorite board game, and so I just kind of instinctively said that Vlad Schwatel was my favorite board game designer because he designed my favorite board game. Uh, for many years, I have considered um, Andreas Stedding to be my favorite board game designer, and that still might be the case, uh, mostly be the case. He's designed a lot of games that I really enjoy. Haunted Teutonica is a game that I've played so many times. Actually, I'm going to look it up now. I'm just curious. How many times have I played Hansa Teutonica? Uh, 
Over the last uh, 10 years, I've had 23 logged plays. And again, I started logging in 2010 and I had played a lot of Haunted Satanica before that. Uh, so that one uh, definitely put Andreas Stedding on my map. Uh, but then I love Stafford Dynasty, which you made. I think Forenzi is uh, a really good game. Uh, uh, War of the Buttons is a peculiar game that I actually w quite liked quite a bit. And uh, Gugong, also a great one. So I think it's probably Andreas Stedding. There might be another one that I'm just blanking on at this moment, but if uh, Andreas Stedding is not my favorite designer, he's certainly, you know, top three. All right, uh, let's move on. And Marco asked, what is your favorite tower defense board game? If you do not have one, do you have any recommendations? By the way, great job on teaching how to play games. Well, thank you, Marco. Um, tower defense board game. Honestly, I think the only ones I've played are Kingdom Rush for a sponsored playthrough and uh, uh, Stronghold for a sponsored playthrough. I don't know if I've played any other tower defense style games. Uh, actually, I did play a game called Bad Bones that came out at Essen two years ago that had a kind of a tower defense vibe overall. Um, I haven't played Stronghold or Kingdom Rush with any other people. In fact, I played with uh, prototypes for both of those. So I think I would probably just default to say Bad Bones at this point. Uh, I got it a couple of years ago and it's still in my collection. So that tells you that... I have decided I want to play that one more than other games, <laughs> going back to that other question. So I guess Bad Bones, but this is not a very well vetted list overall because it's just not a type of game I've played that much. Uh, Ross asks, uh, have you revisited your best games of 2018 lately? Man vs. Meeple revisited theirs this week and some of the hosts did not change their order. Um, well, let me take a look. All right, so glancing at the list... Uh, my number one game of 2018, well, I guess I'll go from one to 10. I'll just say it briefly. Uh, one was Concordia Venus. Two was Keyflow. Three was Underwater Cities. Four was Lowlands. Five was Scorpius Freighter. Six was Passing Through Petra. Seven was Railroad Inc. Eight is Neom. Nine is Minera. And 10 is Pandoria. Now, um, that's a good list. <laughs> Those are all really good games. Uh, um, and Honestly, I'm not sure what games have um, specific uh, dates at this point to say, oh, such and such game would have bumped another one out. If I did some research, then it's possible. But I can tell you right now that I still love essentially all of these games. Uh, I say essentially because um, I think Neom is a fine game. I don't think I'd mind not playing it again in the future, but I still really enjoyed it. And Pandoria, I had a strange play the last time I played that one. It's a weird game, and that's part of the reason it just barely made the list instead of not being on the list because I like weird games. But I'm not as solid about my position about Pandoria anymore. So if I was to remove any from the list for something else, it would probably be Neom and or Pandoria, but I'm not sure what would actually replace those. I can tell you that I still love Concordia Venus and Underwater Cities is great and Keyflow is great. All those games are great. And I don't think I would change the ordering of any of those at this point. I think Concordia Venus, Keyflow and Underwater Cities still makes sense. Maybe Underwater Cities would beat out Keyflow, but I think I said Keyflow at number two, uh, mostly because it plays up to six players so well, so it's so easy to get to the table. Uh, Shorty asked, uh, I always hear this game shows its age. How would you define when, uh, when a game does show its age? That's an interesting question. Um, I've definitely said that before. I've definitely felt like that before. And... <laughs> It's really hard to say. I mean, a big part of it is the fact that I have played, you know, hundreds and hundreds of games over the last 13 or so years. And so just playing games for that amount of time, especially that many year in, year out, just gives you a feeling of like when you play something, you're like, this just reminds me of like, 
you know, the early aughts or, or, or the, the late aughts or the early teens. And I don't know, maybe it's because uh, sometimes designs go in fads. You know, there was the, the, the legacy fad that was all the rage back in like 2015, 16 or so. Uh, uh, deck building was a, a, a crazy rage back in like 2010, 2011, 2012. And uh, I guess... I guess this game will kind of show its age if it feels a lot like a popular game from some time in the past. Like, if I was to play a deck builder right now that um, had you set up uh, stacks of cards that you draw from, very similar to Dominion or something like that, I might say, oh, this kind of feels its age because, well, Dominion was the first deck builder and it was massively successful and liked by many. I really liked it when it first came out. But over the years, I feel like the ideas that originated from uh, Dominion have been smoothed out and uh, worked on over time to the point where if somebody just came back and like borrowed a lot of those ideas straight from Dominion and then put those into a game today, I would feel like this game feels like it's about 10 years old because it does not have all of those subtle tweaks that have been layered on over time as people publish games with ideas from previous games and then people play that new game and they have new ideas and they they publish uh, design games off of that. So it's kind of an iteration process. And I think um, just kind of going back to the, the source of those iterations is probably where that comes from. Uh, anyway, that's the best answer I can come up with on the fly at this point. Uh, awesome. Oh, wow. Mike Bloom, thank you so much for the uh, super chat donation. Uh, looks like the question that you asked, oh, it's farther down. Uh, I'll, uh, I'll get to it right now. Uh, so Mike said, are you still enjoying Ring Fit Adventure? Are there any other video games you've been playing? Okay, well, the reason for the tilt in my voice is because I've not played Ring Fit Adventure in about two months at this point. Uh, I hit it really hard when I first got it at the start of January. Um, I did it like many times a week for the first few weeks. And then it went down to a couple times a week and then uh, maybe once a week. And then, you know, things happened. You know, I went to Gamma and then Shelter in Place happened. And I, I actually haven't really exercised since the Shelter in Place started beyond walking the dog. Uh, we do walk the dog quite a lot. And, you know, walking for uh, an hour straight is certainly exercise. But um, I I've been thinking about trying to get back into it. Uh, if I'm being honest, the gamification in Ring Fit Adventure did not grab me as much as I was hoping it would because it's still just doing repetitive exercises. Uh, the game itself does feel a little bit repetitive over time, so playing it as a game definitely did not latch on the way I'd hoped. Um, honestly, the thing that I would love to do is play Beat Saber, like, every single day. Uh, that is a virtual reality game where you're, like, wielding a lightsaber to a beat to, like, dance to songs and whatnot. And I've played a friend's copy on a friend's Oculus Rift um, about a year ago, and I adored it. I had so much fun. And that's not too surprising, considering this is a little bit of a tangent, but I had a very big uh, uh, rhythm music game phase uh, back in college, you know, in, like, 2000. Uh, three, 2004, I, I went down a deep hole in Dance Dance Revolution. Um, I went through many pads and uh, I had, uh, I made some really great friendships. Actually, my oldest friendships I met and uh, strengthened those friendships through playing Dance Dance Revolution. Uh, and that was a really good exercise overall. And then that transferred into Rock Band and I played Rock Band every single day for like many years, primarily on the drums. So I like beat style games. And so I really want to play Beat Saber a lot, but uh, we don't have a Oculus or any virtual reality systems and they're very hard to come by and they're very expensive. So um, I think part of my brain's been like, yeah, at some point we'll get Beat Saber and then I'll start exercising again. But that's definitely just me procrastinating. I should definitely start pro uh, exercising again. I should start Ring Fit Adventure uh, again. It's sure it's boring, but you know, exercise is not meant to be that interesting. And we do have a, uh, um, 
an elliptical, which has been sitting unused for a while as well. Anyway, um, the rest of your question was, what other video games have you been playing? Um, I've been going off and on with video games over the last couple of months here. Actually, <laughs> in my life, uh, I'll go a couple months without touching a video game, and then I'll play a bunch of video games for a few weeks. Um, there was a spot early on in the shelter in place, so, you know, like eight weeks or so ago, where I was playing a decent number of games. Um, one of them was called Piku Niku, which was this cute, like, five-hour-long platforming game that I really enjoyed. Um, there were a couple others that were the SteamWorld games on Switch. I really enjoyed, specifically SteamWorld Dig 1 and 2. I really enjoyed those games. Uh, they're kind of platforming uh, uh, sort of games that are not roguelikes. But yeah, I, I generally, I have been finding myself not video gaming that much. I bought a Kindle I, a month before the shelter in place started because I wanted to start reading again. And I've been finding over the last few weeks that I've been thinking, ah, I don't want to be productive anymore. I could play video games or read. And then I just end up reading instead. So that's kind of where I've been at, at least for the last few weeks. All right, let's move on. That was a long answer to your question, Mike. Uh, let's see here. Uh, Gert asked, for the videos you play, say, for the videos you play games solo, but outside this, you, do you play solo and what is your favorite solo game? Um, the short answer to this is I don't play any games solo, uh, really at all, because technically when I play these playthroughs, I'm pretending to be two to three, sometimes four different players. Um, I essentially never play the solo version of games for my playthroughs. And every time I've tried to, um, just to like kill time or I'm curious about a game, I just, something about my brain just cannot lock in on playing a solo game for the sake of playing it. I understand that a lot of people really enjoy that type of gaming, and that's awesome. I'm super glad that they do, but it just does not work for me. Uh, the last time I tried to play a game solo was Trismegistus, and that was, again, because I read the rules and I was like, oh my gosh, I have to play this game at least once before I film this playthrough, and I wasn't sure if I would have a chance to play it with friends. So I learned the uh, solo rules for the game. I set it up, and I started playing it, and about 25 minutes in, I just stopped. It just wasn't interesting to me, and I don't think that's the solo uh, version of Trismegistus's fault. Every time I try to play a board game solo, I just I lose interest. I, I really need somebody else to be working against, and uh, that's just, I don't know, the way my brain works for some reason. So I don't have any recommendations for you, unfortunately. I, I can't remember the last time I played a game solo all the way through because, again, my playthroughs, they just don't count. They're not using the Automa uh, options in games or the other shortcuts that games use to play solo. So, yeah. All right. Ross asks, how do you tell someone kindly that they are taking way too long to take a move? Well, we do have friends that can do that sometimes. Honestly, I sometimes take too long. Um, what do we usually do? I mean, it, I guess it depends on how well I know the friend. I know my friends pretty well. Uh, usually we, we say something along the lines of, well, you should just pick one of those two options, <laughs> you know, because usually if somebody's taking too long on their turn, they've mulled their decisions down to like two or maybe three different things. And uh, oftentimes people around the table who want the turn to go will start giving their opinion, like honest opinion, not trying to like trick their opponent into making a mistake. Like you should do this. It's better. It's just better, you know, because of this and this and that. And the person who's taking the long turn will hopefully A, pick up on the hint and B, just take their turn and move on. Uh, there have been some times where exasperation sets in and we're just like, 
could you please go? It's It's been like eight minutes or something like that, but we have to fall to that relatively rarely. It seems like subtle coaxing is usually enough to snap somebody out and be like, oh my gosh, I'm sorry. And then they go ahead and take their turn because sometimes when you're crunching on some options, um, it could be, you can kind of lose track of time as you're just like working your way through this stuff. Okay, uh, next up is Jace. Uh, Jace asks, what is my most anticipated game for this year? Huh. I have a hard time answering this because I'm not, hmm, I'm sure there are some. Uh, you know, I do my games radar vlog where um, I talk about the new games that I hear about, and I know that there are some that I've been pretty excited about, but honestly, my brain does not hold those in my head. Uh, for a game to get stuck into my head to be remembered in the future, I usually have to play it at least once. Um, I don't spend that much time thinking about the games that I don't have yet that I want to play because I have so many games here to play already. And from a uh, professional perspective, I'm usually so focused on the games that I'm filming in that moment um, that I don't really think about games in the future. So um, there is probably a great answer to that question, but I'm having a hard time coming up with anything. I guess I could say, um, just because it's literally the first game that's come to my mind and the most recent one, um, is there's a new Vladimir Suchi game called Praga something, something. I can't remember all of it, I believe. Um, it's definitely not in English. And uh, I think Vladimir Suchi makes brilliant Euro games. So that one is probably it because I learned about it yesterday <laughs> and it's supposedly a 2020 release. So we'll go with that. Although there's probably something else that uh, would actually be that if I heard about it. All right, let's move on. Uh, Dennis asks, what breed of dog do you have? We have a bulldog. Oh, that's cool. Um, we have a Bernadoodle. Uh, so she's a technically an F1B Bernadoodle. She's uh, three quarters poodle, one quarter Bernese mountain dog. Um, and uh, one quarter of her poodleness is mini. Uh, that's important because Bernese mountain dogs can be big and standard poodles are also not small. But um, our dog Puffin is about 34 pounds. So she's uh, very small if you consider her against a Bernese mountain dog or a standard poodle overall. Um, uh, she's really wonderful. <laughs> I haven't heard her in a minute. Uh, maybe she'll make an appearance at some point. Although I have closed the door to my office to try and uh, uh, keep uh, outside sounds uh, from coming in. Uh, Alan asks, do you enjoy team versus team games? Yeah. Yeah, I definitely do. Uh, they're pretty rare, um, but my essentially most game played game of all time is Tichu, which is a two versus two team game. And a big reason why I like that game is because it is team-based. Um, there's, there's kind of a neat thing about team-based games where it hovers in the middle between cooperative games and uh, competitive games. A lot of people say like semi-cooperative games live in that space, but I think that that's just something else entirely. Team games gives you a feeling where you are cooperating with at least one other person on the table while competing for others. So you have the best of both worlds, essentially. Um, that means if you win, you win together, which feels awesome. It means if you lose, well, you have somebody else you can partially blame for <laughs> coming in last or whatever. Uh, I love Tichu. Obviously, I said Concordia Venus was my number one game of 2018. And a big part of that is because I love Concordia and making Concordia a team-based game makes me love that game even more. So yeah, I, I highly enjoy team-based games. All right, Davey says, hey, John, have you ever visited Belgium? Have I ever visited Belgium? I don't think so. I'm going to do something very um, USA, California-centric. I'm going to look at a map of Europe real quick to check and see if I've visited Belgium before. Uh, there's a lot of countries over there in Europe. Yeah, looking around... Uh, yeah, I might have very briefly because when I went to Essen three years ago, I, I went to Amsterdam first for about four days to get acclimated to the area and just 
I don't know, seemed like it made sense if I'm flying halfway across the world, maybe visited uh, visit a neat town. So uh, I went from Amsterdam to Essen, Germany, and it's very likely that on the train ride between Amsterdam and Essen that I poked through Belgium, uh, but I did not uh, do more than get off at a train stop and then jump back onto another train. I actually had kind of a... a a stressful but didn't end up being that stressful thing happened there where uh, I ordered my train uh, ticket like two months in advance to go from Amsterdam to Essen. It was only supposed to take like two hours or something because trains are crazy fast in Europe. And then on the day to do it, I left my hotel, went to the train station and found out that my train was canceled. And I was like, what do you mean the train is canceled? And how did I not know about this for a prepaid train? Uh, so I talked to a person at a kiosk who thankfully spoke English and they just said, um, go down to this spot and jump on this train and then um, then do this other thing. And I couldn't remember everything else they said. So I ended up jumping on that train and I got closer and then I jumped off and I asked somebody and they said, oh, jump on that train. So I was looking at Google Maps the entire time and I kept getting closer to Essen throughout the probably three and a half hours that it took to get over there. But I was just kind of like jumping all around Europe between Amsterdam and Essen, uh, constantly getting closer, just jumping from high-speed train to high-speed train, um, not having to pay anything because the ticket that I had counted for it. And I ended up getting there without any problems overall. It was it was a thing that seemed crazy stressful at first when I found out the train was canceled to me arriving at Essen like three hours later being like, wow, public transportation is amazing in Europe. Uh, so yeah, maybe I've been in Belgium. It's, it's possible on part of that trip. Uh, thanks, Ross. Uh, Ross is asking Dennis's question, says, is there a theme you haven't seen in a game that you would like to see? Yeah, probably. Let's see. What what theme would I like to see in a game that I haven't yet? Uh, again, questions like this are tough because there are so many games out there. There's so many themes that you just would not even expect. You know, I did a sponsored playthrough for Mini Golf Designer last week, which is not a game about building a mini golf course. It's about being a designer of a mini golf course. So you don't even build it. You're just putting the design together and then competing with other designers. Like what a niche theme that was, but it, I thought it worked really well for the overall uh, mechanics that you were doing in that game. Uh, you know, okay, here we go. Uh, how about a event production slash event power distribution <laughs> board game? I say that because that's my other career, the career that I'm essentially uh, leaving uh, that I've been doing for like the last 13 or so years. Uh, specifically, it's uh, event lighting. And uh, my specialty is essentially power distribution, like how to get big power from generators to all the different spots that they go to. I guess more of my specialty is managing people and the managers tend to also do power distribution. I think you could have a pretty cool board game for electrical power distribution. Maybe not just events, maybe just like temporary power, like, oh, there's been an earthquake and now here are these emergency generators you have to run power to the hospital and, you know, the, the other place that needs power. Maybe there's a game there. I certainly haven't seen that theme before. And uh, for me, I would love to play that game because uh, just the personal affinity that I have towards the, uh, the career that I've been doing for so much of my life. All right. Uh, Jace asks, do you try to show as many different strategies as you can during your three-player tutorial playthroughs, or do you just play each other however you can as the game goes along? Um... I try to show different strategies. It depends on the game. Uh, if a game seems to have very laid out strategies, then I will definitely try to have the players go on those different tracks. Um, not all games seem to have that, but I do try to have players differentiate what they do because you know, these playthroughs are supposed to be entertainment. They're supposed to be interesting. And if I have every single person doing the same thing, well, then why even bother having multiple people be playing the game? Uh, now, a lot of that is organic because 
if somebody is going hard on something, then oftentimes it makes sense for somebody else to kind of do something different because there's an opening there to not compete. So it's not usually that hard to shoehorn in different strategies for games, but I do give conscious effort to try and do that when I can. Hoser asks, do I play any role-playing games? Uh, no, no, I, I don't. Uh, I've tried in the past. Um, let's see, the most recent role-playing game that I played was a Star Wars one. This would have probably have been about five years ago, and we did, I think, two or three sessions, and it was with some of my very best friends. Uh, the person who was running it uh, was best man at my wedding, and I was the best man at his wedding. Uh, we've, we've been playing board games together for like 13, 12, 13 years, um, and it just didn't work for me. Role-playing games just don't work for me because I could not help but play it as a board game, and that kind of bounced off of the role-playingness that everybody else was trying to do. Uh, honestly, from a personal perspective, um, one of my personal quirks or weirdnesses is that I get intensely uncomfortable if I ever think that I am projecting not 100% my authentic self. And even though a role-playing game is a game and everybody knows that we're all pretending to be different things, I never really feel comfortable in those situations, which is why I don't tend to play um, even board games that have very uh, heavy role-playing um, uh, aspects to them overall. Uh, I tend to just be myself in whatever situation I am. Like, I feel very comfortable with who I am, and I feel very uncomfortable trying to be anything but that. And that's been the case for my entire life. Uh, so role-playing games just don't quite work for me. I, I gave it a shot. Um, I played, I think, a, a droid mercenary, and I just ended up shooting everything because, well, I had a really nice gun and my stats were all good for combat. And, you know, it'd be like a situation where combat didn't really make sense. But I was like, as a board gamer, I was like, well, I'm most efficient at shooting this gun because I roll better dice and I have better modifiers and all that. And I don't know, I, I could tell it just wasn't as fun, like in general. So after doing a couple sessions, um, I think I politely bowed out and I think my friend's we're happy about that overall, and uh, my closest friends get together and play role-playing games essentially every single week. Um, I don't even know the stuff that they play because it's just not something that I, I really click with, and I'm really happy for them. It's, it's great that they love it so much. It just, it just doesn't work for me. Uh, Ross says, not really a question, but do you think you could mention at the beginning of each one of your tutorials the player counts of the game you're about to do a playthrough for? Huh. That's interesting, Ross. Um, as people may have noticed, people who pay attention to a lot of my games may have noticed, you probably didn't, uh, that I have slightly changed the way I do my playthroughs over the last eh, about four or five months. And in particular, maybe it was more than five months ago, but relatively recently, I started beginning my playthroughs off with an overview of how the game works, like two or three minutes, uh, pointing to the different components and uh, maybe just trying to give an idea of where the game is going before I actually start playing the game. Uh, now, that's a relatively new thing because before that, my goal for these playthroughs was just to start playing as soon as humanly possible. Like, no preamble, let's just get into the game and teach it as we go, and I kind of saw that as my brand. But then somebody uh, sent me a geek mail on BoardGameGeek, and they very politely asked that I consider doing an overview at the beginning because they rightly said that, I'll just jump into the mechanics and start teaching the game. And the people watching it have no idea why we're doing X action or Y thing. And I'll try to explain it as we're going, but I realized that, yeah, it probably does make sense to have a brief overview of just the bones of the game, like maybe a little bit about the theme and the, uh, the a very high level look at the mechanics. Um, a, so that people could just stop watching after two minutes if they're like, yeah, this is not a game for me. And B, just so that people are in a better headspace for it. Uh, now that's, 
kind of a tangent to come back to your uh, request there, Ross, because, well, maybe I could put this into that overview. And maybe instead of saying it just to kind of eat up some time, I could potentially put something on the screen, like right there as part of the overview, like, by the way, this game plays this and that, and maybe other stats. I don't know. I'm going to think about it, Ross. That's a neat idea. I'm definitely going to think about it. Doug asks, at what point is a game too long hours-wise for you to want to play it? Uh, Well, there are other factors to keep in mind, but um, on the face of it, my favorite playtime is 90 minutes for a game. Uh, I I think I kind of wish every single game was a 90-minute game. Now, that's not entirely true because some games do deserve to be longer. Uh, You know, many games have an epic feel and it takes a long time to get invested in those. And I've played many games that are like four to five hours long that I've thoroughly enjoyed the entire way through. But as far as like the average game length that I am looking for, it's between 90 and 120 minutes, between, you know, an hour and a half and two hours. Uh, I guess, actually, I would revise that to say just between one and two hours because I think that's a really good area for games. I think you can play a heavy game in two hours, and if you can, that's great. And honestly, one of the reasons I've been kind of uh, going away from heavy games a little bit uh, as time has gone on is because it seems like I'm having a hard time finding heavy games that don't take us like three and a half hours to play. And I like heavy games. I like crunching through lots of complicated ideas. I like having tons of mechanisms smashing together in awesome ways, but I also like playing lots of games. So in general, I would usually prefer to play two games over the course, two two two-hour games versus one four-hour game, or two 90-minute games versus a three to three and a half hour long game. Uh, So that's kind of my personal preference, but at the same time, my picker, you know, the thing in my head that says, ooh, let's play that game, ooh, let's play that game, it definitely veers towards the heavier than I would generally prefer. Um, You know, the two and a half to three and a half hour range. Uh, So I'm not going to hate a game experience if it's that long, but I think once a game crosses over two hours, it really needs to deserve to be that long. And uh, for me and my play group and my play style, it seems like we do uh, take longer to play games than a lot of other play groups do. And um, sometimes those games do overstay their welcome. All right. Uh, Alan asks, tea or coffee? Um, Well, short answer to that is tea kind of. Uh, The longer answer to that is I don't really like hot drinks in general. I'm a a cold drink person. Um, I actually really dislike coffee, like a lot. Like I, if I accidentally eat a candy that's coffee flavored, I will probably spit it out uh, unless it's a very mild coffee flavor. I just really dislike coffee and I always have. Um, Tea, I don't mind. Tea is fine. Um, In general, I think I prefer iced tea because I do not I, in general, I don't like hot uh, drinks, um, but usually I gravitate towards other drinks. Like I will probably just rather have a glass of ice water than go through the effort of making tea, even though I don't mind tea. Uh, usually the only time I go out of my way to drink tea is if I have like a, a sore throat and then I have like ginger tea. And I, I really do like ginger tea. I just don't do it for uh, reasons other than essentially medicinal. Uh, Hoser asks, what's my favorite legacy style game? Uh, well, I've only played a few of them. Um, Pandemic Legacies, obviously one and two, are very much legacy-style games. Uh, I've played about 30 to 35 sessions of Gloomhaven, although for me that feels more like a campaign game than a legacy game, but that's kind of a a mincing words that some people might disagree with. I think... I think it would be between Pandemic Legacy 1 and 2 because I just haven't done that many other legacy games. I tried Seafall and it really fell flat for our group. Um, Between Pandemic Legacy Season 1 and Season 2... I have a really tough time with this uh, because I really enjoyed both of them. They had different feels overall, and I enjoyed aspects of one better than two and aspects of two better than one. So I'd love to cheat and just say Pandemic Legacy 
Asterisk, like both of them, <laughs> they're both my favorite legacy game. I do feel like if you're gonna play one of them, then why not try to do both? Uh, I guess it is a decent amount of time that you have to, to invest into them. And if I was going to only play one of them, I would probably go with Pandemic Legacy Season 2. Um, the reason for that being it's somewhat different than Pandemic, the base game, the original game. Uh, Pandemic Legacy Season 1 is essentially Pandemic at the very start, and then it has things that change it overall as you go through the campaign. Whereas Season 2 feels a lot like Pandemic, but it's kind of like pandemic in the upside down world where like the mechanics are kind of inverted in a lot of ways. Instead of trying to cure diseases from areas, you are trying to preemptively put supplies into areas before disease come. And that seems like a silly uh, distinction, but it really did change the overall decision space. And uh, we really enjoyed playing it. So I think I would give a slight edge to Pandemic Legacy Season 2. Uh, let's see here. Ali asks, which board game designer would you want to play a game with? Which board? Huh. That's interesting. I mean, I might just default back to the favorite designer I said earlier, which was Andreas Stedding. I think he has some really cool ideas, and I I would I think it would be interesting to play a game with him. Uh, some other designers that I would potentially pick, I've actually played games with already. <laughs> Not to like name drop or anything, but uh, going to conventions and just like being in this industry has given me a lot of opportunities to get to know designers. Uh, some of them have become uh, quite good friends. Uh, Frank West, for instance, from uh, uh, City of Games, is is a really good friend of mine, and I played tens of games with him and he's super fun to play games with. Um, so uh, yeah, I, I think uh, Andreas Setting is probably the one I'd be most interested to play games with at this point. Uh, Ross asks, uh, last question before he leaves, how do you decide how many players you'll film when doing a playthrough? Sometimes you do three and four, which is awesome. Other times you do only two, which is completely understandable. Well, the short answer to that is I try to play the game I try to balance between showing the the best game possible while also showing as many people as possible because I could just default to doing two players for every one of my playthroughs, uh, but people have that covered. <laughs> Rado's been doing that for a lot longer than I've been around, and uh, Tom Heath from Slicker Drips does that as well. In fact, it was a conscious effort when I first started doing playthroughs to do three-player playthroughs because I kind of felt like Rado had the two-player playthrough market cornered. Like, why do two-player playthroughs? Rado's got it taken care of, and he's always going to make four times more videos than I will ever get out. So, you know, when you're trying to do something in a crowded area, you want to differentiate yourself. So I said, well, how much time, how hard could it be to do a three-player game? I said to myself before I filmed the very first one of these, and it turned out to be a lot of work, and um, I've decided to continue doing it for all these years. Uh, so I do think a lot of games play better at a higher player count than two. Um, and I generally don't play games at a two player count that often. So um, I would love to do all of my playthroughs at a four player count because I think a lot of Euro games in particular that I gravitate towards play best at four. But I also know this is entertainment and this is video content and you know people are on YouTube and there's so many different uh, YouTube channels to watch. So I have to try and you know not steal too much of your time as a watcher. So uh, that's why I put the timestamps like crazy in. That's why I uh, timestamp so you could skip to every one of our turns so, th so that you could um, just ignore the other two players if you are strapped for time. 
And uh, that, that's essentially the reason for it. Um, if I do a four-player game, it's probably because some part of the mechanics really need that fourth player to, to, to show that idea off and in, in whatever game that might be. Uh, for instance, Concordia Venus, <laughs> which I will be recording uh, probably in a week or so, I am currently going back and forth. Like, do I want to play three players or four players? Three-player game would be quicker, and there are cards for a competitive three-player game, but the reason most people are interested in Concordia Venus is because it's a two versus two game. So I feel very compelled to film a four-player game, but then I'm worried it might be too long. So I think I probably will end up doing the four-player game, even though it'll probably be a very large project. <laughs> it'll probably be much longer than the average game for a, a variety of reasons. But that's essentially the reason. I'm trying to balance showing the game off as best as I can while also not taking uh, too much time overall. All right, I think I'm going to answer these last two questions from Ronald and Hoser. Thanks again to everyone for coming. Uh, so let's go over to Ronald. Uh, he asked, do you play print-and-play games? Um, in general, I don't. Um, the asterisk to that is that um, I have done a couple print-and-plays over the years, uh, but I don't think I have realistically in the last five or so years. The last print-and-play game that I made for non-professional reasons was actually sort of professional reasons. That was Tiny Epic Western, and uh, that happened during the Tiny Epic Western uh, Kickstarter. And I remember, uh, this is back when I was, you know, definitely full-time with my other job, and John Gets Games is only, I don't know, maybe like two years old or so, a year and a half old. And I just remembered I had the day off uh, from my other job. And I was like, man, I don't have any reviews. I don't, I don't know any games well enough at the moment to do a review. I don't really have any games I want to do a playthrough for. And I was like, oh, I know. People really like uh, tiny epic games. Those Kickstarters blow up. So I should um, make a print play of that one, learn it, and then film a playthrough of it, and then put it out to kind of capitalize on the hype. So I made the playthrough for it. Also, I was interested uh, in the game. I'd actually played the game already, so that kind of helps. I played a prototype of it at a convention prior to that. And uh, I made it, and I sent it to the publisher, and they were they loved it. They were overjoyed by it. They actually put it on the Kickstarter page, and I have filmed every single tiny epic game since then. Uh, so that kind of started my professional relationship with Gamelink Games. And, um, you know, for the last three years, every one of those has been uh, sponsored content. So that print and play game definitely worked. Uh, but before that, yeah, there were a few print and play games I did um, between 2009 and 2014 or so. Uh, usually it was a game that I was crazy excited about and I just could not wait any longer. Um, honestly, I'm having a really hard time coming up with any of them. Ooh, Eminent Domain. I remember that. I backed that one on Kickstarter. In like 2010, like this is way in the early days of Kickstarter and board games on Kickstarter. And they, they put a free print and play up, or maybe it wasn't free. Maybe you had to back it to get access to it. And I, I so desperately wanted to play Imminent Domain that I made a full print and play of it. And I played it probably like five or six times, but it kind of backfired on me because when the game actually got sent to me, I had already played the game like five or six times. And I don't think I ever played the full version that I paid for because I played my uh, prototype so many times. Uh, I actually ended up, uh, or I print and play so many times. I remember I sold my final copy and I kept my print and play version and still played it one or two more times before I ended up getting rid of it. So <laughs> I've kind of a weird history with print and play games, but it's not something I uh, necessarily jump to all that often. Uh, at this point, I think I'm going to wrap this one up. It's been exactly two hours, and I don't know how many questions I've answered, but it's definitely been quite a few. Um, I see that a couple people squeak things in right there at the end. I'll give you really, really quick answers. Uh, do you uh, want to go to PAX Unplugged one year? It's probably never going to happen because it's so close to Board Game Geek Con, and I always go to Board Game Geek Con at this point. And Joe said, uh, favorite podcast, board gaming related or not? Reply All. Reply All is by far my favorite podcast, period. You should absolutely listen to it if you hadn't. 
Uh, all right. I, I really am going to stop this one now, even though a couple more questions are coming in. Uh, so once again, thank you to everyone for joining in. Uh, thanks to uh, the several people who uh, sent in Super Chat donations. I really appreciate that. And uh, yeah, if, if I hope people are enjoying the fact that I'm doing these Q&As as a uh, monthly thing now. Um, this is the, the second monthly one I've done in a row. And interestingly enough, I unlocked it early as part of uh, a Patreon goal last month because I just wanted to do it. And the Patreon campaign did so well that it's pretty much to the point where the goal would have been unlocked anyway this month. So that's super cool to see. Um, I guess I should mention that um, if you enjoyed watching this uh, Q&A overall, then I uh, hope you would consider maybe, you know, supporting the Patreon campaign at even uh, $1 a month. It, it certainly would help overall, but you certainly don't need to at all. And uh, yeah, I think that's going to bring this one to a close. And hopefully I'll bump into some of you again next month when I do another live Q&A.